You know why I'm here? Because he has made me glad. The Lord has made me glad, and, and he's, uh, hopefully he's made you glad. And he can continue to make you gladder and gladder and gladder. He's a good God. And we can shout his name, Yahweh, because he rules and, and he reigns. So it's a joy to have you here tonight. Uh, you know, there are three great days in your life, maybe more. The day you were born, the day you discover why you were born, but the third is even more important, the day you begin to live out the reason why you were born. And you were born for a reason. Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. And we are his workmanship. One version says, Ephesians 2.10, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. And um, my wife and I, 13 years ago, started an organization called Hands of Hope, and we've just been trying to keep up with Jesus in terms of loving orphans because, you know, he hears the cry of every human heart, but especially of children. He's a father to the fatherless. And there are 1.6 million orphans in the country of Zimbabwe. It's the highest per capita of any country in the world, population and the number of orphans. And so our organization is called Hands of Hope. You have two hands, and you have hope that the world needs. And uh, we bring hope to, to children in Zimbabwe. So our mission statement should be up here on the screen. This is it. We exist to communicate the love of Christ to orphans by partnering with the local church and assisting the body of Christ in meeting the needs of orphans, body, soul, and spirit, Africa, Zimbabwe, and around the world. God loves kids. He loves us. And uh, we just try to love on them. Here's our, our vision statement, is that we want to try to provide for each child that we have a, a hope, a family, and a future. And our emphasis is on AIDS orphans. Uh, there are 15 million orphans, they tell us, in southern Africa alone. It's going to max at about 25 million. And uh, the governments are not taking care of the kids. It's us, the church, that, that responds. Currently, we have in Zimbabwe uh, 19 homes through local churches. It would be like if Sunset had an orphanage, you know, just down the street and a home, and you had 10, 12 orphans there and so forth, and you cared for them. Well, we partner with local churches there. We have six preschools with uh, about 200 little orphans, three to five, and we feed uh, 2,000 children about somewhere in Zimbabwe every day, mostly in, in rural areas, some places where they have no electricity, no running water, places like that. So we just try to, to love on kids. Here's some, some children, all the children in, the, in this picture here. Um, they're fatherless. The little girl, Kudzi, up there, someone just dumped her on the street, gave her to the police. Uh, the police gave her to social welfare. She's come into our home in the last... Uh, just, what, five months, I think, something like that. We gave her a name. We gave her a birth date. Uh, the little guy that you see down here, uh, Sean, was dumped off recently to downtown Harare, the capital city. We took him into one of the homes that you all support uh, through Pastor Matatu, who was at uh, the west side here, I think, about a year ago or so and, and, and spoke. 
And uh, this, these two little twins that you see up there, the mother had destroyed. This is her third set of twins. She had destroyed the weakest of uh, the first set of twins she had. She destroyed the weakest of the second set of twins she had. And she was going to destroy the littlest of these two little boys, Joshua and Josiah. And somehow the police came in, and um, now we have two of them in our home called Shalom. And the little uh, girl down here, there's Patience and Ruth, and Patience was shipped over actually in a container from the Congo and was being used and abused on the streets. The police brought her to us, and, and she didn't speak, I don't think, for about six months. You'd touch her or try to touch her, and she would just cower back because of abuse and so forth. And so we're just trying to rescue kids like that. Um, a year and a half ago, the Lord gave us this piece of property that we purchased. It's 134 acres. It's called Habitation of Hope. John Ross, who is sitting down here, he goes to Westside, just had a team over there of six, and they ministered in, in, in a camp for 50 children the following week, another 50 or so uh, children. John's been going for five of the last six years, taking teams from the Jesus Church there and, and loving on kids. And uh, so this is a pastor's conference. We work with about 50 pastors now in Hands of Hope. So I did a, th a three-day conference at the end of April and, and uh, uh, first part of May for, for pastors that we work with, just servants of the Lord Jesus who just love kids in their neighborhood. And so uh, the last little slide here just shows that we just try to love orphans one at a time. And um, we are so thankful for the network of Jesus churches that carry on, well, we couldn't do what we do in Zimbabwe without you. So uh, we want to say thank you on behalf of our board here, our board in Zimbabwe, and uh, pastors and orphans and children. If you have a Bible, I want you to open it up, if you would, to the book of uh, Philippians. And uh, I told a joke in the first uh, service, nobody laughed, so I'm decided, no, they, they did. But, but look, I just want to share with you tonight from, from, from my own heart. Uh, to you. You have m way more potential than what you think. God made in our lives the mid-course correction. I was a high school teacher and a basketball coach. He's, he saved me out of the pit I was in at age 30. And he took us in our midlife, so to speak, at about 34 or something like that, and took us off to Sri Lanka, where we served as missionaries. I coached the national team there, then to the Philippines. And we've been on some kind of a journey that God has had us on. And after a basketball trip in 1975 to Kenya, Ethiopia, and Egypt for seven weeks, my wife and I knelt at our bed, and we prayed something similar to this. Lord, we'll go anywhere. We'll do anything with anybody. Like this song we were singing, my life is yours. He purchased us with his own blood. And uh, you put your hand in his hand, and he will guide and direct your life like nothing else. When you come to chapter 4 in Philippians, I want you to turn to chapter 1, but if you come to chapter 4, Paul says, I have learned the secret. Have you discovered the secret of the Christian life? If you were to ask Paul, or at least from my observation, the secret in Paul's life was that he was in love. 
He was in love with the Savior. And what I want to do tonight is just to share who Christ was to Paul. And he can be all of that to you and to me every single day of our lives. When you come to the book of Philippians, you will find the word Jesus only mentioned once by itself. You will find the word Christ mentioned 36 times. Paul was a Jew. He knew something about the Old Testament, and all these prophetic passages came together in the Apostle Paul's life, and he was struck down, if you remember, in Acts chapter 8 on the road to Damascus to haul off Christians. And God struck him down, blinded him, And he said, who are you, Lord? That's the word kurios. What would you have me to do? The Christian life in your Christian life, to me, is encapsulated in those two questions that he asked the Lord. Who are you and what would you have me to do? And so the Lord told him. He even told him how he's going to suffer for his name's sake. But he was to take this good news about Jesus to the ends of the entire earth. And when he comes towards the end of his life, he says to King Agrippa, uh, all that God told him to do, to open the eyes of the Gentiles. And he said, consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. And God has a vision for your life and a plan for your life. And what we don't want to do is to foul it up. (laughs) He wants to use us. So you got your Bible there. You look at the first verse. It starts out like this. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was Christ to Paul? He was his master. The word, two little words that you see there, bond servant. Servants have masters. And Paul had a loving master. We used to sing a little song in Zimbabwe. uh, Master, we are here. Master, we are here. Loving master, we are here. We are here for you. And when you submit yourself to his leadership, The word master here literally means commander. He's like the commander-in-chief of the armies of God. And when you put your hand in his hand, he can guide and direct your life like no one else. You will not find the word master used in any of the Gospels outside of Jesus' word except in the Gospel of Luke. And it's spoken by his disciples And uh, Peter, after he had fished hard all night, do you remember that in Luke chapter 5? And Jesus says, hey, Peter, push out into the deep for a catch. And he says, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And he let down his nets for a catch, and they couldn't contain them all. They had to get another boat. And Peter says to him, 
depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus could have said, okay, see you later, Peter. <laughs> but he didn't. He said, no, fear not. From now on, you'll be catching men. It's the only time in the Bible, well, one other place where it literally means catching men and women, boys or girls, alive. Taking them out of the hands of the enemy and putting them in the hands of God. From now on, you're going to be catching men. When you put your hands in his hands, you have no idea of the journey that he is going to take you on. I'm a farm boy. I hadn't traveled much. We kneel at our bed. We pray this kind of... We had no idea. I've been in 50-some countries now, and uh, sometimes I go out not knowing where I'm going. But that's the exciting adventure when you come under the hand of, of a master. And one of the things he's going to do is he's going to teach you how to trust him. So you find in Luke chapter 8, uh, they're in the boat. Remember that? The waves are coming in the boat. That's not a good thing. And they wake Jesus up and they say, Master, Master. I don't think they just kind of poked him and says, Hey, Master, Master. We... No, Master, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? We're going to die here in this boat. And I suppose he just kind of yawns and he speaks to the sea and he says, be still. And then he says, do not fear. Where's your faith, guys? But you see, they came under him as master and they began to follow. And he made them fishers of men. The second thing you'll see, if you look at verse 6 of chapter 1, it says this, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Christ was Paul's perfecter, his completer. If you've placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, he has come into your life, invaded your life, and what he starts, he's able to finish. Aren't you glad it all doesn't depend on you? It's a, he's going to perfect it. He's going to change you from the inside out. And one of the things that he wants to do in your life is to make you more loving. If you look at verse 8, it says this, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You have any idea of the affection that Jesus has for you? And Paul understood this affection. And Paul had this affection for people. And as he works in your life, he will give you a heart and a passion for people, for kids, for adults, for anyone that's lost, that's outside, that's in the darkness. So he will continue to work in your life, giving you love. He goes on and he says, in real love and all discernment, in real knowledge. You see, love thinks. Love thinks of other people. Is he your perfecter? Your completer? Your master? Then look at verse 12. Because Christ was Paul's message. Look at verse 12. It says this. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. 
so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. You ever look at the circumstances of your life? I don't know what you're going through, what you've gone through. Struggles, divorce, loss of a job. We rarely look at the circumstances of our lives through the lens of the kingdom of God and the gospel progressing. If there's anyone that could have complained, it was Paul. He was now chained to a Roman guard, I think in about eight-hour shifts. But he wasn't sitting there, why God? Why now? Why this? He says, man, I love it when a plan comes together. I'm chained up, and now the whole Praetorian Guard, this is Caesar's household. It's the last place you would think that the gospel could go forth. But God had a sovereign plan in having Paul under house arrest. Can you imagine being chained to him for eight hours a day? This dude who's talking to, you know, the Lord Jesus, huh, sharing his experiences and so forth with him. Five times he had received 39 lashes minus one. Twice he'd been stoned, talking about his travels. These guys must have thought he was crazy. Now, but the gospel came. And he goes on and he says, now, because of my imprisonment, some people have far more courage to preach the gospel. They do it without fear now because of, because of me. Is Christ your message in your school, at your workplace, in your neighborhood? He's the good news. It's wrapped up in a person. He's the substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The faith that you and I have here is, is not some uh, theoretical uh, bunch of truth. Christianity is a person, the Lord Jesus. The death, the burial, the resurrection, it's, it's written in history. And, and Jesus has come. He's the, the image of the invisible God. And he's the one we share with people. It's, it's marvelous. Fourth, the fourth thing you find in chapter 1 is that Christ was his life. Without Jesus, you wouldn't have a life. I mean, you'd have biological life. But when you trust him, God's life comes into you. It's Zoe. It's the life of God in the soul and so forth of man. You and I are body, soul, and spirit. This old body is wearing out. I'm 70 now. It's not getting any better. I'm losing hair. I got more wrinkles. I can't do what I used to do, all right? Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And when the Spirit of God comes into your life, he starts to change from the inside out, and it affects your mind, your will, and your emotions, your thinker and your feeler and your willer. <laughs> He starts to work in your life. All right? So Paul says, for to me to live is, is my relationship with Christ. He has changed everything in me. He's the one who forgave Paul. He's the one who healed Paul from his past. You got a great past? I got a horrible past, things I don't even want to remember. But he can heal your past. Okay? Learn from your past, but don't live in the past. 
The enemy will keep you in the past. I've heard that one-third of Americans struggle with things from their past. And for us as Christians, we may bring things from our past into our lives. The enemy may bring things past, from the past into our lives to hold us together. But Jesus doesn't. He wants to free you from the past. For to me, to live is my relationship with Christ, and to die is gain. You could not defeat the guy. When you come to chapter uh, 2 of the book of Philippians, look at what it says there. If, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The purpose is that we would exalt him. Christ was his comforter, his encourager. Is it a comfort to know that you're in Christ? Hello. That's a safe place. Is there any comfort or encouragement that he loves you? I hope so. Is there any encouragement that there's fellowship with one another and, and with the Spirit? That there is affection and compassion? What? Jesus took you from death to life, from sinner to saint, from being an alien and being an orphan to being a child of God, from wrath to mercy. What comfort that that brings it should bring to your heart and my heart. Then if you look at verse 5, look at that. Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not require equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ was Paul's example. And the example that you find here is the example of humility. That's not popular in all culture. If you watched NFL football today, you didn't see linebackers going to the quarterback and saying, Oh, I don't want to hurt you this afternoon. No, no, no. It's pride. It's arrogance. It's winning at all costs. It's beating the other guy. And Jesus left his place to come to our place, planet Earth, to take our place on the cross so that we could go to his place. It's called heaven. That's our message. That's humility to the uttermost. And Paul says, now, Christ is our example. We are to demonstrate this kind of humility, this kind of character in Portland, in Hillsboro, wherever you are, wherever you go. Jesus is our example. Then he's our resource. Look at verse 12. It says there, therefore, my beloved brethren, um, whom I, uh, what does it say? Verse 13, 
It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Christ was Paul's resource. You, you, you have some things that you say, you know what, can't handle this, can't go there, can't do that, can't forgive. You can. God is at work in your life to will. He gives you desires and to work for his good pleasure, for his kingdom, for his honor, for his fame. He's at work. God, the same one who spoke the worlds into being, is at work in your life. I think we ought to say, thank you. Hmm? And he's not going to quit working. He's not going to give up on you. No, not at all. Chapter 3. Look at how it starts out. Finally, brethren, what's the next words? Rejoice in the Lord. Sometimes that's all you can rejoice in, is in the Lord. There are lots of things that can steal your joy. I like to say there's the, there's the three Ps. Problems, pain, people. <laughs> Had any people steal your joy? Any relatives steal your joy? Any children rob you of your joy? Any parents or in-laws rob you of your joy? Yeah. Pain does it. Why me? Why now? Huh? So you find your joy in the Lord. Joy is a byproduct. It's not something to seek. It's a byproduct of being connected to the true vine. He's our joy. So rejoice. You can rejoice in him. The next thing we find in chapter 3 is that Christ was Paul's righteousness, and he's yours too, by faith. Paul says, whatever things, I think verse 5 or 6, whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, that I may be found in him, not having any righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. That when you put your faith in him, he makes you righteous. He imputes to your account righteousness. We call it justification is the theological word for it. That God can justify the ungodly by faith. And that was me. Ungodly, rebellious, a sinner. In fact, public sinner number one. That's how Paul treated himself, that should be you, it should be me, that God would justify us, that we have his righteousness, not our own. And then Christ was Paul's prize. You know, the prize comes at the end of a game, at the end of a run, it comes at the end of the journey. <laughs> so Paul says in his journey, he says, not that I have already obtained it, already become perfect, but I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. He's always calling us higher to, to more of himself, 
to more of His work in our life and submission to His will so that we would be, as it were, living ones in a dead world. In fact, He says that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead so that I would be like that, a living one in a lifeless world, that I would shine forth like a star. Fourth thing, chapter 4, or chapter 3, Christ was Paul's hope, and he's your only hope of glory. Look what he says in verse 20. How many of you are American citizens? <laughs> okay, that's good. Maybe some of you have a green card or whatever else. But look what Paul says. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior. I hope he comes soon. What's he going to do when he comes? He's going to transform the body of this humble state into the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. Is that power? Is that hope? A change is coming. Those old wrinkles that you look at, the hair that's falling out as you get older, you know, a change is I'm waiting for the change. Yeah. I could do the, some of the things I used to do. I can't play ball like I used to play ball. <laughs> Chapter 4, Christ was Paul's peace. Look at verse 6. I know you don't worry about anything. You're not anxious at all, ever. You, you all look so peaceful. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Uh-oh. But in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request, you don't have to let your request be made known to God. It would be wise for you and me if we did. There are four different words for prayer right there. And in prayer, you surrender. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Worry is like a rocking chair. There's a lot of motion, but it doesn't get you anywhere. Huh? Somebody said that worry is like a small trickle of fear that meanders through your mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts drain. Just a little trickle, and you start thinking about it, and pretty soon it's got you. No, pray. And then he says, finally, brethren, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Most of us, we're dwelling on the next DVD, the next movie. You know, we're surfing the web. We're getting the next newscast. We're getting the talk show. Let whatever's true, honorable, right, pure, let your mind dwell in these things. And then he says, the next verse, the things you've heard and received and seen in me, Philippians, you practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Right praying, right thinking, right living. That's the key to having the God of peace, no matter what circumstance you're in. You could be going through the worst possible thing in your life today. You can still have peace. 
Three more quick things. Christ was Paul's contentment. I think it's about verse 12. He says, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. He, knows how, he knew how to live with prosperity. When he had a lot, he knew to have lack. In any and every circumstance, he had learned the secret, contentment. Don't we live in such a nice, contented world? No, no, no. Every commercial that you see says you got to have this. You can't be content with what you have. For a sheep to lie down, it has to be free from insects. It has to be free from issues with other sheep. It has to have its hunger taken care of, and it has to have its fear removed, and then it can lie down. Paul says, I've learned. You don't get contentment in a bottle, in a pill, from a commercial, from a weekend retreat. You learn contentment by trusting the shepherd. Christ was Paul's strength. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You're facing some situation and you say, I, I, can't, I can't forgive that person. I can't love that person. I can't work with this employee anymore. You can't or you won't. There's a big difference. Paul says, I can. You can forgive. You can love. You can reach out. You can treat people because of Christ. One version says, I'm self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. Not our own. And lastly, Christ was his supplier. I could take you to Zimbabwe. John could take you there. My wife could take you there. We could show you children that get one meal a day. Some children get no meal a day. When's the last time you went without food, without clothing, without shelter? And Paul writes and he says, verse 19, my God shall supply all your needs, Philippians, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The Philippians had given sacrificially, and Paul says, because of what you've done sacrificially, you've given a gift more than once for my account. It's a fragrance that goes up to God. God's going to supply your needs. And we do it by faith. You can't figure everything out in life. Faith sometimes means giving when you don't have it. <laughs> you can't understand everything, but you trust God. He will supply all your needs. See your supplier, your joy, your contentment, your peace, your prize, your master. See your message. Your example, your comforter, he can be. Every single day, put your hand in his.